0: This is iGPI podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm Makoto Shiono, Partner and managing Director at iGPI. Today, we're going to talk about investing in Japanese companies with my colleague, Koki Sakata,
1: CEO at iGPI Singapore.
0: Welcome to the show,
1: Koki. Hi, Makoto, and hi, everyone. My name is Koki Sakata, CEO of iGPI Singapore. Thank you very much for having me today. And I'm very excited to be here. Thank you, Koki. So let's start.
0: Um, in the past, the top 30 companies in the world market capitalization ranking were mostly Japanese companies. But now we don't see any. It is really over for Japanese companies?
1: Well, I have never thought that Japanese companies are over. The P ratio of companies listed on the first section of the Tokyo Stock Exchange was over 60 times in 1990 while P ratio of, of S&P 500 companies was about 16 times today the prime market P ratio is about 14 times in Japan one could argue that valuations at that time were overvalued and i don't think it makes sense to look at it too macroeconomically instead I think we should drop the big subject of Japanese companies and analyze individual companies from a micro perspective. Michael Porter has been analyzing the profitability and capital efficiency of Japanese companies since the 1980s, analyzing them as a collection of a few excellent companies and a majority of mediocre companies. He also analyzed that neither the Japanese government model nor the Japanese corporate model has been a successful factor for the Japanese economy since that time. That has not changed, and even in Southeast Asia where I live, a shopping mall would not be possible without Uniqlo, Daiso, and Don Don There are still a few excellent Japanese companies in many industries even now.
0: Okay, Don Don donkey. It is indeed true that Professor Porter analyzed that the Japanese corporate model was not excellent since the bubble economy period. Then, why do you think that Japanese economy leaped to the second largest in the world at that time?
1: In a nutshell, I think environmental factors contributed significantly. I will divide my explanation into two parts, national security and capital markets. First of all, in terms of national security, after World War II, Japan was able to have its manufacturing base built by the victorious countries, and furthermore, it was able to concentrate on fostering its industries without having to think about national security. I think how much Japan benefited from not incurring the cost of national security will become quite obvious in the next few years. Another point of view is that At that time, all the money exploited from consumers through high prices and low interest rates was used for capital investment. In this sense, one could argue that the Japanese government's policy of encouraging deposits and life insurance was another successful factor.
0: You mentioned that there are a handful of excellent companies, both during that bubble and today. What do you think those companies have in common?
1: First of all, I think it is the fact that they do not consider themselves as Japanese companies. There never used to be a company called Japanese company and I don't think there's any point of analyzing them vaguely in large subject terms. For example, the companies that I've just mentioned, Uniqlo, Daiso, and Don, Don Donki, which are quite active in Singapore, have been running their business uniquely for a long time under very strong leaders. You mentioned that the Japanese model
0: of government has not been excellent since the bubble period. Is there anything that the Japanese government can do to increase the number of
1: such companies? Well, I think the only way to do that is to put in place policies to change the industrial structure. The problem with Japan's industrial structure is that the industrialized society model has been treated like a successful model And Japan has not been able to ride the internet and digital wave that Alvin Toffer described as the third wave. There are people that overemphasize digital transformation to increase labor productivity, but unless the industrial structure is changed, there will be no increase in productivity. Labor productivity can be broken down into human capital productivity, physical capital productivity, and total factor productivity. And what makes Japan inferior to other OECD countries is total factor productivity. In other words, resource allocation or industrial mix. Simply put, we have no choice but to set constraints for firms to think and encourage firms that cannot operate under the constraints to leave. Constraints are, for example, uh, minimum wages. I think there are significant implications to be gained from the fact that Recently, Uniqlo and a few other major companies has raised wages in Japan on its own.
0: Okay, I see your points. Is there any role that the Asian institutional investors can play when it comes to the um investors?
1: Yes, I think it would be to find companies that are close to Japan because of their capital structure and to influence them directly. After all, from a micro perspective, the behavior of individual companies is dictated by their capital structure. However, I must say that Japanese companies' ability to design capital structure is extremely low. Therefore, both large companies and startups end up saying, let's all climb Mount Fuji together. As I mentioned at the beginning, the P ratio of Japanese companies are historically low, and the yen continues to weaken. There is no doubt that this is an attractive market for Asian institutional investors to find high-potential companies.
0: It was great insight. Thank you very much for joining us today, Koki. Thank you so much for listening to IGPI Podcast. Please find us on igpi.com.sg for more information. We'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.